0: Hello everyone and welcome to inside the Arena podcast brought to you by Piers Arena. On inside the arena podcast we talk about mental health, well-being and every other issues and challenges we all face in our day-to-day lives. And on each episode we'll be having a guest on to talk about their own experience with these issues and most importantly, how they are able to navigate and overcome life struggles and challenges. I am your host, Tony and thank you very much for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Inside the Urbana podcast. Um, today, we'll be diving into a topic that is particularly um, very, very profound and incredibly important, which is mental health advocacy and the power of empathy. Our guest today is an extraordinary individual whose life experience has taken him on a journey from the private sector to humanitarian work, from thriving competitive sports to becoming a mental health advocate and the CEO of the Human Aspects Foundation. Please join me in welcoming Jimmy, a key figure in reshaping how we perceive and approach mental health. Today's episode, we will explore his fascinating journey, the vision behind the Human Aspects Foundation, and the impact of empathy in building a more peaceful and united world. So hello, Jimmy, how are you doing? And thank you very much for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. Hello, Tony, and thank you so
1: much for having me as a guest as well. It's a, it's a pleasure. We love doing this, you know, the beauty of technology, doing a recording you're doing it in Nigeria I'm doing it here in Oslo Norway so it's a pleasure to be here and especially on such an important topic mental health the power of empathy and in general two men sitting talking about it I I think it's important
0: yeah I really really think that it's important Um, before we begin you just made um, something I really think I can piggyback off talking about two men sitting down talking about mental health Um, I think that is something that is not particularly a thing, especially from where I come from, from Nigeria and my own culture. Two years ago, I actually lost my mom. It was a really, really profound time in my life. Um, I went through the grieving process. It was a roller coaster. I think that's the best way to just put it. One of the ways I was able to actually heal, um, you know, and move forward a little bit was a couple of friends of mine, they recommended um, support groups for me, um, some in America. And I was attending online, like the power of technology, like you actually just mentioned right now. And after all of that he he actually made me understand that there's a lot of people going through this type of issues and the best way we can actually um you know start talking is, is to have open conversations and that was how I felt like um you know I could do something with my own experience and help maybe bring these stories to life and get people involved a little bit to make them understand um i I actually understand that you have a very very profound story as well so i would like for you to actually share yours too so the audience can get a sense of um, the type of conversation we're going to be having today and get familiar with you a little bit
1: yes um thank you for sharing tony you know grief is the is the only challenge that every human will face at one time or another as long as we live long enough we will start losing people that we love and i think it's it's a challenge that many people forget Mm -hmm. about because it's also a challenge that we're not talking about you know most uh, cultures we're not talking about how to face grief even though it's something everyone goes through so I think it's very important to start with the challenges that everyone can recognize themselves with as well and and making the mental health aspect of grief something that helps people understand mental health in a better way so I'm I'm sorry for your loss Um, I also lost my My grandmother, when I was um, quite young, that was the most important figure in in my life at the time. So I was uh, 22 only. And in the same way you describe it, had a profound impact on my life and completely turned things around in many ways. And as you said, it was a roller coaster. And all the roles that you have to deal with as well, facing grief, I was the natural person in the family that would give a speech and that would organize and support the family. My mom took another role, you know, people took different roles. And suddenly I find myself in church where everyone was crying and I was supposed to give a speech. So suddenly my feelings were just shut down in many ways, trying to be the strong one, right? Trying to fill a role and just experiencing that Mm -hmm. just emphasized the problem that I'd been going through since I was young. So. To try to give a short version, I I grew up in a very small um, village. Uh, It was like 500 people and my family had fled from a much bigger city in the middle of Norway and they had fled from abuse and violence uh, from from my grandfather. So even before I was born, there was a lot of trauma for my aunt, for my mother and for my grandmother and they moved. Uh, My grandmother found a new man, started a new family in this small place and When I came into the world I was a so-called accident as well so my biological father didn't want anything to do with me so I came kind of troubled into life and my family was different than a lot of the people that was living there so so was I when I grew up I think I had to deal with too many adult things in the you know young age so I felt different I started to get bullied after a while I have ADHD which also made me, you know, the typical problem child in school, struggled to sit still, struggled to control my emotions and and I was a very active young man that found the classroom tricky even though I was uh, I was very smart in the sense I was good in school but just when I wanted to and when I could sit still. And when I got into what we would call upper secondary here so when you're 13 You start the next stage and then you start uh, going to school with people that are from other villages. So I, I had so big expectations that it would get better. I was like, now maybe I'll find some new friends. Maybe the bullying will kind of go down a bit and I'll feel like I belong a little bit more. And I had just been kind of the weekend dad solution with my biological father. So even at this point, I had a stepfather who was a fantastic man. I still went a couple of times a month to my, my biological father, and he was an alcoholic and struggled heavily. So I experienced as well quite a lot of distress uh, while I was there. So everything happened at the same time. And then when I started that school, I realized that it wasn't going to get better. Potentially got worse. And that's where I ended up in a suicidal
0: uh,
1: kind of part of life where I just I gave up on on life and I couldn't see myself continuing so I planned my own suicide when I was 13. I'm very lucky to have survived that week between my plan was put and when I was supposed to do it and that was again my grandmother that uh, said something in that time because my mom had also gotten sick. You know the typical A lot of things you can't control. My mom got sick. My father was an alcoholic, bullying at school. Most of us have different things that we don't really control, especially when we're young, that impact us. And and eventually, kind of the glass is full. And then it's easy to go into the mode of feeling like, what's the point of all of this? You know, I don't really see a future. But my, my grandmother was the first one who asked me, how are you feeling in all of this with your mom going on? Then my mom was sick, and that combined with my best friend, who kind of just stuck around with me and kind of that week uh, did activities with me, but without really understanding what was going on. He just understood something was was not right. And once I got through that week, that's where sports kind of helped me to to fuel my to fuel my world. So. I guess uh, there's a lot more to that story, but we can take it step by step, I guess. So um, the first time I met mental health in a very severe way without knowing that it was that. I didn't tell anyone. And I was 30 years old when I first told people that I had been suicidal at the age of 13. But after that, sports became my ambition. I wanted to get into athletes college because that means I would have gotten a, a chance to move away to another big city And move away from my family and all the troubles and and the bullying so that was kind of the next step in the story
0: you said something about being 13 not telling anyone what you were going through and some of the things that helped you overcome that particular phase in your life Um, looking back at it right now if there's someone listening to this right and they do have that a 13 year old around them given the fact that n- people were around you and no one actually noticed that something like that was going on and you didn't say anything what would you advise parents, guardians, siblings, loved ones to look out for when they have young people around them?
1: Yeah, know I think the most important thing to know about suicidal kind of periods and the suicidal mindset is that at the same time as I probably wanted to be seen more than any other time in my life I was also further away from opening up than I've ever been and that's kind of a conundrum that it's like that so the challenge of it all is that at the same time as you really want support you don't want to open up so it's, it's very difficult to see you're actually actively working to hide it in in many ways. So I would say the most important things for parents and for people to look out for, especially in teenagers, is when their behavior changes over time. You know, teenagers, their behavior changed anyways, and it did for me as well. But if it changes over time, if you have a very outgoing teenager and suddenly they get withdrawn, or the opposite. If you have a withdrawn teenager who suddenly sparks out, And this lasts for weeks and months. This is normally a a sign that something is wrong. So if you haven't properly talked to them, then I would, I would recommend to try to go into a situation, for example, taking a drive, taking a walk, because it doesn't work to just say to the teenager, no, you know, how are you doing now? How are you really doing? I think we need to talk, you know, this kind of forced way of getting them to open up rarely works. But uh, driving a small drive or walking a small walk normally helps people to take down their guard. And that's where you can just start asking simple questions of, you know, how how are you feeling about the financial situation these days where it's, it's tough on us, uh, or how are you feeling when my, you know, my dad and, and I, we separated? Or how are you feeling when grandma died or, you know, because Parents have a tendency to understand what is going on. They have heard something. It's just that they normally don't want to believe that it's impacting their teenager in in such a heavy way. But uh, that would be my first recommendation for, for that element. But I'm sure we're going to talk more about it as well. Yeah,
0: we are going to talk more about it. So let's jump into the Human Aspects Foundation and its origin. What is actually the Human Aspects Foundation and what was its pr- original primary goal?
1: The Human Aspects Foundation is a foundation that is behind what is today the largest free mental health resource, which is called the Life Experience Library. You will find it, you know, in humanaspect.com. It's, it's an open library where you find the lived experience journeys of more than 800 people from more than 100 uh, countries. And I've done all the interviews together with my teams. We have traveled around the world and also gotten people to visit different places. And you will find then specific therapeutic interviews, video interviews. You will find podcasts, you will find uh, small infographics and articles and, and mini documentaries that we also made 14 of. So it's basically a tool where you can find self-help but it's also a tool where you can support your teenager or utilize it at work. If you're a social worker or a mental health worker or a community health worker, you can also utilize it there. So it's it's basically a massive tool. Um, the origin story kind of is the next part of my life story. Yeah. So I got into athletes college. I, I didn't think about mental health challenges in the same way for, for a while. I focused on, you know, mental training and sports and competitiveness. And I moved to a big city alone. So even though it was difficult, it was also more exciting now Mm -hmm. in a different way. But when I was finished uh, those three years, I was 19, I had to go into the armed forces or the military, which is mandatory at the time. So I ended up in uh, the special forces. And I ended up becoming a rescue diver in the Coast Guard, which is on the close to the North Pole in the very cold uh, sea mm-hmm. <laughs> up north. And I was there for a year thinking about what will I do now? You know, should I go back to my athlete career or, or should I now go to study? You know, which I've been told my whole life. So I was sitting um, in the Special Forces as a rescue diver and I was thinking about how to continue my life. So I realized that I had to start studying at the university. And I started studying shipping. It was very popular at the time. It was something that you think you could get a job and it was something that interested me. I had always lived close to the sea and close to waters. And shipping in Norway is a very big uh, industry. So I started studying there and after just one year in school, I was actually headhunted by the biggest shipping company in the world. So I was extremely fortunate coming from a very poor background and have no connections or anything in shipping. And suddenly they asked our school if we had some talented people and I was fortunate to be one of them. So in the age of 21, I was full-time hired to, to work for this company and my life was turned completely upside down. Suddenly, I was someone who could contribute financially to my family and I could take that, uh, you know, responsibility as a man as well, which was was also something that I was very grateful for. Suddenly, I could give uh, a small uh, supported gift to my sister and try to help people where they needed it and support my friends. And then <clears throat> I actually worked in shipping for seven years while I also was a professional youth uh, coach for football. And I was a mental health uh, trainer for uh, top level athletes um, at the same time. And then I was uh, an expat in Singapore when I was 27. So in the end of my shipping career, I went there, you know, feeling that I was successful feeling like now I was a person people looked up to, again, not really thinking about mental health other than when I was 20, 22, 23, where I lost my grandmother. But, you know, as I said, similar to you, I took the grief like a man and I kind of suppressed it. Yeah, I didn't really acknowledge it properly. And in Norway as well, I don't know if you know this, but in Norway, we have a very strange custom when it comes to grief. It's not like you get a proper week to grieve with your family off work or it's it's not routines like that. It could be that uh, you get three hours off, you know, you go into the office in the morning, you go to church, and then you come back and you go back to the office. Wow. It's complete madness. We we look at uh, grief very poorly here. And then sitting in Singapore, in Singapore, I had been there six months when I played a football match because I still played football, you know, for fun at at an okay level. And I shattered a disc in my spine and ended up in the hospital and losing a lot of the nerves to my right leg and was in excruciating pain. And I'm in the other side of the world. Singapore is in Southeast Asia. So it's, you know, 15 hours away from my family in Norway. So I was alone. I was scared in many ways. I didn't know if this was for life. Would I be semi, you know, disabled? Would I... How would this impact my career? Would I have to move back home? And I was told that I had to go through surgery and that I would never be able to do top level sports again. And that it would probably impact me, but I was young, so they thought, okay, you can probably battle through this. And that's, I think the first time in my life where I sat down and asked myself big questions like, why am I here? Am I doing this for society? Am I doing this job because I want to support my family? Am I doing it because my friends think it's cool? Or why am I here? And that's where I realized that I've always wanted to work more with people than to be in business and working in shipping. And, you know, it was interesting, but not really the, close to my heart. So I decided to to quit shipping. I had to do 18 months of recovery. So I finished my bachelor's in, in business and management um, while I was sick. <clears throat> and that's where I decided to change my career to Doctors Without Borders. So I went into Doctors Without Borders. My first mission was Afghanistan. And I went a year to Afghanistan, a country at war, uh, very different from me. I, I You know, even though I'm not uh, coming from the most privileged background in Norway, I'm very privileged to be from Norway and I'm very aware of that. So coming to a country like Afghanistan was, was difficult, but also helped me realize that how lucky we are in many ways, but also helped me see the world through eyes that I needed to learn. And we had a big bombing of our hospital in Afghanistan. Where I lost a lot of colleagues, similar to what we see now in Gaza, where the Allied forces and the Americans bombed our hospital. And it was a huge situation, you know, we went out and called the Americans uh, that they had gone through a war crime. It was a horrible situation to be in, and I was one of the leaders uh, in the organization at the time in Afghanistan. So I was very close to the situation. And... I thought that I was the only one not really talking about things because I had grown up in a very masculine context, you know, small Mm -hmm. village, uh, my uncle, my grandfather, everybody was like macho men, you know, both my uncles were boxers and they were practical people. My stepfather is 194, you know, so I grew up in the context of big boys don't cry. You probably Hmm. feel the same and, and recognize this, I guess.
0: Yes, yes.
1: So at this point... I thought that people talked about emotions and especially maybe women, but that I didn't. But when this happened in Afghanistan and we were hundreds of people from 50 different nationalities, none of them spoke about it. Wow. And it surprised me. I was thinking like, why? Why are we not talking about difficult things? As you said, this was grief. This was shock. This was war trauma. We got psychologists uh, that tried to help us, but, but no one really talked about it. And that's where the original idea for the human aspect started cooking in my head. I was thinking, Hmm, we need to do something about this. It seems like there is nothing between life and a psychologist. And I wanted something to fill that gap. And that's where I started thinking about, huh? What if we had a low threshold tool that was for free where I could learn from normal people and how they have faced challenges? Because that's the way I'm brought up in the village. You know, if you don't know mathematics, you have someone who can teach you. If you don't know how to ride a bike, someone will teach you. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to create the same for life. Because my problem was I had no one in my family that I experienced war. So I had no one to talk to and ask about these things. And that's where, when I came back from Afghanistan, I went on another mission in in Greece and Syria for Doctors Without Borders. And when I came back home, that's when I decided to start and contribute to build that tool.
0: Wow. And how has the journey been so far and what has been the impacts of the human aspects?
1: So, you know, everything in the beginning is just an idea. So in the beginning, it was just a small idea. I thought maybe it would be a blog or maybe it would be an Instagram account. You know, I, I didn't envision it to be my life, uh, which it has been the last seven years. But we went on the streets, uh, took a camera, <clears throat> and I knew that I had always been very good at getting people to open up. So growing up, I was the person who people talked to. If they had problems or they were struggling with some feelings, they they normally talked to me. My grandmother was the same my mom, it's the same as well. So I guess I have it from, from them in my family. So growing up, this allowed me to get a talent. And I used that talent going to interview people on the streets and asking them about the three major things. What is your biggest challenge that you have faced in life? And I challenged them to talk deep about it. Emotions, reflections, going deep, being vulnerable, crying, being silent, talking about the difficult things that you don't want to talk about. And part two was the journey. How did you face this challenge? How did you heal? How did you move forward? And part three was, what did you learn from this? What are the reflections and thoughts that this challenge brought to you? And that was part three of the interviews. So in the beginning, we weren't really sure how it would go. But after a while, we realized that this is not just therapeutical, which it is, but it's also something that engages people. It's something that people wanted. So when we pushed it out six months later, we got very good uh, reach. We people saw it in the Philippines, in Nigeria, in the U.S. All over the world, suddenly people started uh, watching this through social media, of course. And then we had the full videos uh, that was in the library. And we made small clips that we shared on social media that became very popular very quickly. So <clears throat> the, the journey started slowly, uh, but then I managed to get some more people to join the team I convinced companies to support us as well for free because we didn't have any investors or anything like that because we are a foundation. So it's nothing you can invest in, either you donate support or, or there's nothing. So moving into that, the company grew very quickly and we realized we needed professionals on the video production side because we weren't good at that. So we took in students that wanted Mm -hmm. to work on this. And we took in psychology students on the other side because we realized we need to to verify the interviews so that we make sure they have a therapeutical good value for people who watch it. So basically, uh, that was the first year where we battled to survive, tried to find fundings. We applied for grants, you know, uh, worked for free, like uh, you're eating uh, crisp bread and water and rice (laughs) with salt. You know, you're you're living very... (laughs) yeah you're putting everything online to to do this, so that yeah. was the first year uh, was was very tough, but we were growing slowly I would say the first year
0: yeah so what has what, what has been the feedback from individuals who have come across the human aspect library what What is the most common feedback you get a lot?
1: I think the most common feedback uh, is that people watch these clips on social media and the full interviews. You know, the full interviews are 45 uh, to 70 minutes long. They have a therapeutical value. So we now know watching one interview will help the person to reflect, put better words, open up and take a first step in their own journey. And so the feedback has been that they've never really seen anything like this. They've not seen such open interviews. And they also finally feel that they're not alone. And that was the magic. I remember in 2017, <clears throat> it was going tough. I was considering, can we even do this, you know, financially? Is it possible? Is, is there a way to do this? And then I got a message from a, a man called Lester in the Philippines, you know, on the other side of the world in Asia. And he sent me this long message and he thanked me for making the human aspect. And he said that he was going through a suicidal depression because of his family was in economic distress. They had lost his uh, his father and that he had to step up and he had to quit school to start working to support his family. You know, so a classic challenge that I know many Nigerians as well <clears throat> is facing. And he said that he had given up on life and he didn't really see any hope. And then he found the video of a Norwegian person that I had interviewed who said the same. And that when he watched that interview, he decided not to do it. And he decided to open up and he decided to change a little bit the way that he worked through life. And I remember that just gave me all the motivation I needed. I, I just knew that I have to do this and continue forward. So. The feedback is everything from people just finding it's beautiful and interesting to learn about other people and realize that they're not alone to people that have made massive steps in their own life. Both saving lives like that, but also people who have faced depression or anxiety or grief say that they have learned something from these interviews that helped them to face it uh, better and also helped them to seek uh, professional help or talk to the people
0: around them. You just said something about someone reaching out to you from the Philippines. You talked about working in Afghanistan and after the tragic incident that happened, nobody was talking about it. I guess my question is, having worked in various parts of the world, having interviewed people from various parts of the world, what would you say are the common universal aspects of mental health? There's this saying, this popular saying, the man who said the tallest mountain in his village is the tallest mountain in the world. Or the tallest mountain is, as seen is the tallest mountain that ever existed. Right. But sometimes I think we are blinded to think that our situation is the, is the worst or these things only happen in our lives, in our environments. And one thing I've really, really learned from diving into the human, um, aspects library is people have similar stories. Like we are no different from each other. At the end of the day, we are human beings with, maybe different experience but vastly the same kind of reactions to those experience right we w- always want to be validated emotional connection is very very important to us we always want to have a community around us and the rest of us so what would you say in your own words is the universal aspects of mental health that you've experienced personally and up close
1: i think number one that we realized in the human aspect and i called it the human aspect and there's a reason why i did that And that is first and foremost, because when I grew up, I was told that we humans are shaped by two things, our genetics and, you know, our mom and dad and their family tree and the environment that we grow up in. But there was one problem for me, and that was number one. I didn't feel like I fitted in in my family and that I was similar to to them. I felt like the person who stuck out, you know, and in the environment I grew up, I felt I was the same. So this explanation didn't really make sense to me. So I was thinking, what else is really shaping us as people? And then I realized it's it's the life we live. It's the challenges we face. And it's how we grow through those challenges. They shape us. So that's why I called it the human aspect. Because I genuinely believe that the challenges that we face make us more similar than, than different. And of course, as well, we know today that there's been discriminatory systems and racist systems that has also been put at play here. So telling you that you're shaped by your DNA is also part of a narrative, which is I today believe is, is very wrong because it's made for us to be divided. But then looking at this, that's why we decided to take away as much as we could from the context and focus on the emotional experience. Because as you say, going through something For example, grief, depression, burnout, uh, these things, or abuse, for that matter, is is the same for for all humans. What is different is the context. Of course, in Norway, if you go through abuse, we would say, you know, go to your doctor and apply for a psychologist. Because in Norway, we have the most psychologists in the world per 100,000 people. But in Nigeria, I know that, you know, saying that as a a lesson or a, a suggestion is unrealistic because it's, it's not that easy to get and maybe you can't afford it as well. And in Norway, as you know, we have a public health system, so it's, it's for free slash cheaper than it would be, I, I know. But what is exactly the same is how we face grief, the different stages of grief. They are the same. The way that, um, as I said, the Norwegian interview that helped Lester in the Philippines helped him because Chris, the Norwegian who talked about being suicidal, put the same words. He helped Lester to realize like, yes, this is what I'm feeling. That's exactly what I'm feeling. And suddenly they connected, even though they've never met. Lester comes from a poor family in the Philippines and and Christian in in Norway comes from also a a normal working class family from, from Norway. So Mental health, if you take away the context on the top, as you say, is universal. And I also genuinely believe that a big part of the human aspect, especially now the social media videos, the clips us talking in this podcast, is just as much about helping people to realize that they're not alone. You know, there's 280 million people going through depression right now. There's 270 million going through anxiety right now. So you're clearly not alone, but it feels like it. And that's what we need to start talking about because we are so closed in our society that you don't even know that your neighbor is going through the same because it would never tell you. So I think um, one of the important aspects of this is, is facing the stigma and talking about it, but talking about it in a way that is constructive. Because um, I would argue that Norway now has gotten to a space where is less stigma on, on many labels. But we are, we are <clears throat> seeing that mental health challenges is still rising in Norway, just as much as in, in Nigeria. And the challenge of that is because we believe that we're open just because we say the word depression. Saying that you're depressed is not therapeutic. Mm -hmm. But saying what makes you depressed is therapeutic because it's up Mm -hmm. to the doctor to decide if you have depression or not. But what is important for the human is to say, what is going on? What is making you anxious? What is making you feel down? Why are you struggling to face this grief compared to Mm -hmm. your brother who is facing it in a different way? And that's the conversation that I think is missing. So Norway, no, we're not open as a country, even though it looks like it. We are open in a shallow way. It's okay to say you have depressed now and have anxiety or ADHD, but it's still not okay to say that you're struggling mm-hmm. This is uh, what I feel is, is universal and also part of the problem.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think there's another there's another level to that there's another layer that we can unpack, you know. I like saying this thing about we need to start looking at mental health from a cultural perspective in every culture, in every society. And that gives us a deeper meaning and a deeper understanding. There's this example I like using a lot. Um, When we were younger, right, if we had friends who were feeling down, who were all of a sudden started acting differently, there's this saying we always say, you're like, what are you thinking about? You don't have kids. You you have to worry about, you don't have a family to feed. So what's bothering you? Why are you so down? I say this, it took me a long time for me to actually realize that maybe that person was actually going through or experiencing depression at that particular point in their life. But well, because we didn't have the right words for it, we weren't educated about it. We just saw it about, we just saw it as somebody thinking too much, right? And they had no reason for them to have that worry, right? Um, the same thing, we we all know we have that friend in our group where, who was like, they're always anxious, they're always scared, they don't want to do certain things. And we didn't really understand that. Maybe that was, that was like some symptoms of anxiety that they were actually um, showing at that po- at that particular point. So understanding what mental health is from a cultural perspective. I think it's very, very important for us to recognize it so that because we, we often talk about mental health. And when that label comes up, everybody kind of shies away from it. You know, they see the taboo, they see the stigma and the rest of it. But if we can begin to describe some of the effects of mental health as something that happens in our everyday lives, maybe people can start understanding that it's not it's not this huge. It's not cancer. It's not something that is, you know, just, that is. it's something that happens every day. It's something that you might have experienced. And that's where the role of empathy comes in. I always say this. You said something about growing up in your family where there were macho men and all of that. I say this. It took me a very long time for me to realize that my mother was an individual was a person. Because for the longest of time, right, we look at people who are older than us as people who got it all figured out. You know, they don't show us their weakness. They they, don't ever get vulnerable around us. They provide, we think they have all the answers, they are wise and all of those things. So sometimes we forget that they are actually individuals who have their own life struggles, their own life challenges. And some of the reasons why they might act a certain way or the rest is... Because of the experiences they've had. So the, so whenever we actually feel like whatever we're going through is too much for us or we are the only one going through it, knock, knock. Your sister in the next room might actually be going through the same thing, but we don't live in a culture and in a society where we can easily talk about this thing. So I just figured out that the best way for me to Having maybe understanding this a little bit that everybody's going through something. And I just think the best way to uh, the best thing I can do is now embrace empathy in everything I do, in the way I communicate to people. I work with a team. If somebody is not coming through with what they're supposed to do, you know, if all of a sudden your loved one snaps at you and the rest of it, it's just the role of empathy. So what do you actually personally think is the role of empathy in, in in talking about mental health and in all of this i think in general
1: as you said empathy is probably something that has slowly disappeared from the world you Now, if you look at uh, the psychologist from the 50s maslow who made the pyramids of needs of what we humans need then on the top they made a new level which is called self-realization So the modern world is more about the individual. It's about us succeeding our parents. They worked very hard for us to be able to go to school. We have been told our whole life, you know, that if you work hard, you can go to school, you can provide for your family. You are not going to have the same struggles as I do. You know, that's been the battle of our parents. So we are a generation and especially the new generation that their main focus is themselves. They're also being told that you should follow your passion. You should follow your purpose. If you're privileged enough, you should be able to decide what jobs you want, you know, depending on where in the world you're from. But more and more, we're striding towards success for the individual. And this is making you less empathic in general, because it's not about the community anymore. I know in Nigeria especially on the countryside, like when I grew up in the countryside, community was everything, the church community, the Muslim community, the community around the village that you lived in, your street, in the city or in in your family. But suddenly now we are being fragmented. So I think empathy is extremely important. And especially as you say, when we're so fragmented that we don't even talk to our best friend or our sister or our brother or our aunt or our uncle or grandma or grandfather, how are we expected to face challenges? Mm-hmm. You know the people around us they're supposed to be our support system they're supposed to be our power. you know this is what I think is the most beautiful of all the different countries I've visited that are further into the South, especially in the African continent, but also Afghanistan and in other parts of the world, I've seen communities stronger, but you're also about to lose it mm-hmm. in in Scandinavia. It's completely lost. There is no community here. It's about everyone is an individual. Everyone is fighting for themselves, maybe their family, but not really. So <clears throat> I think. But both the human aspect and talking more about it, as we say, like this helps us to have the conversations that is empathic. Because if we start opening up, we start realizing that oh, maybe the person, the boss at your job that you think is an idiot or someone who is not respectful or someone who that drove very harshly in the street or someone who took away your job or someone who said something bad to you. You don't know what they're going through.
0: Mm.
1: If you look at conflicts, as we just spoke about, you know, the Palestine-Israeli conflict, if you look at the Ukraine-Russia conflict, if like all of these things contain human beings. And I think if we start showing a little bit more empathy towards each other, Mm. especially men, but also women, uh, then I think we can slowly understand each other more and be a little bit more open and not react as harshly every time something happens and i think that is uh, definitely the way to go especially in mental health as well because i've you know i said i've spoken to more than 800 people from 100 different countries so one of the things that has been in all the interviews when people have said what they needed or what helped them everyone talks about someone supporting them. Mm -hmm if it was a professional, if it was a friend, or a family member, it doesn't matter. Everyone says when I was seen, when I felt someone understood me, and when I felt someone genuinely supported me. That's where I found the strength in myself to go through the challenge. Mm -hmm. So I think empathy is is key, as you said, and uh, as men who is scared of being vulnerable and open, it's extremely damaging because it's making us, you know, that lonely wolf in the wolf pack that is walking outside the rest of the wolves, you know. And you're an easy prey mm-hmm. for life if you're walking alone, thinking that uh, independence is something to strive for. Independence is something that will get you killed in today's modern world. And I'm not talking about uh, the savannah where there's predators to take you down. I'm talking about life will kill you. Mm-hmm. Either you will burn out, you will get depressed, or you will maybe end up doing drinking drugs. So I think uh, community and empathy is for me, two biggest values. And there, I think we in the north of Europe and Europe have tons to learn Mm. from Nigeria, from Zimbabwe, from South Africa, from Afghanistan, countries where community is still strong. So. I would uh, I would love to hear more from you as well your take on on community and how it's changing in Nigeria also.
0: Yeah, it's it's cha- it's changing and if I must say is not from my perspective it's not changing in a positive way we are heading towards the negative side because it's almost like we're trying to emulate the lifestyle of the western people, right? And why I say this is because they are setting negative trends that are being propagated on the internet right just like the panel we met on right we have a common friend dari we were talking about the impact of social media on suicide prevention and people's mental health you know i remember i said something i said what scares me the most right we can recognize bullying right? Sometimes society is not fed to those type of things, right? We stand against it. We fight, we fight against it. We can see it, we can recognize it. But one of the dangers is like that flies over our heads is that we can't recognize when people are propagating their own coping mechanism, which sometimes if it's negative as a proper um, solution to everybody else and our subconscious are picking up these things we're seeing online and on the internet And applying it to our lives without even knowing that that is where the source is coming from. Because the human mind is so powerful. Because, I'll give you an example. Now more than ever, people are saying, don't call me, just text me. Don't call me, just text me. Right? We have gone from seeing each other all the time and communicating in person to talking on the phone as if that was not bad enough. People don't want to do that anymore. People want to just text. Right? So... We are more connected than ever, and yet we are so lonely. This is the time that we have been... And I think there are so many research papers to actually back this up, that loneliness is the biggest killer right now. People are lonely. People are disconnected. Even families sometimes, you might be in the same household, and if you want to say something to your siblings, you don't even walk to their room or see them, and you text them. People go, people live in the same household and they end up not seeing each other for days and the rest of it. So to go back to answering your question, I think the individual, the individuality aspects of this thing is something that is on the rise. And now more than ever, we are, we are often Saying this thing, sort of like a trend on social media, like, oh, don't call me, just text me. Or if you can leave it in a text, don't call me. Or like, you know, there are various aspects. I just want to be left alone. People are, there's this trend of putting your phone on do not disturb, right? There's, there's, there are so many layers and aspects to this thing that we actually think it's the trend. We think it's fun. We think like, um, that's the way we communicate in the world today. But these things are constantly making us isolated, right? So if you ask me about the community aspects of Nigeria in my country, I think it is slowly going away because now more than ever, we are, we are just moving into an aspect, into into a phase where we actually believe the trend and independency is making yourself as isolated as you can possibly be. So, it to me, it's really, really scary. If you ask me,
1: I completely agree. I've actually called. Um, I give a lot of talks, and uh, the new talks that I've been given, I call them, you know, maneuvering the maze or labyrinth of independence, mm-hmm. as you said, connecting it straight to the new trend and the data that we see on loneliness. We actually found a lot of research here in Norway that helped us explain how and why the you know, the mental health uh, data is increasing for young people. And it touches upon what you said. And this is a very important point that I think we can all communicate further. Just think a little bit about this sentence. We have never in history, not in human history, have we ever had lower meaningful human interactions Mm. than we do right now. Mm -hmm. As you said, never in history. So even though, as you said, we are more connected than we are, that we have ever been, we are in many ways more privileged than we have ever been, if you look at poverty, and these numbers, you know how to measure, even though it's difficult for many, it's still better than it was 50 years ago. And if you take the world in average. But still, as you said, we have never had less meaningful interactions. And the fascinating part is not just family, friends, and community. Mm -hmm. There's another part to this that people have forgotten about, and that is the meaningful human interactions you normally would have with the people outside your closest circle. Mm -hmm. Meaning the people in the grocery store, meaning the person that drives the tuk-tuk, meaning the person that drives the minivan that you drive for work. Because we don't talk to them we're we're sitting on our podcast, uh, we are listening to sound messages, you know, we are making emails on our way. So you don't even smile, or say hello, or ask the person next to you on the minivan, how they're doing. Mm-hmm. And I know that you do this much more than we do in, in, in the north, you know, I, I'm I just came back from South Africa and from Zimbabwe. So of course, I felt that there they talk more to each other than what I do, but I still saw the same trend, Mm -hmm. as you said, you're mimicking the West, but you're also mimicking the destruction of the West. Mm -hmm. So this is your time to be able to, to, to stop that development before you get the same problems as we do. And that is that we are extremely polarized. We don't talk to each other. Mental health is rising. And sadly elements of society that was supposed at least in Scandinavia to have gotten better. For example, racism was was 10 years ago is much better than it was 30 years ago. But now, the last 10 years, it's rising. Hmm. And the main reason it's rising is this trend. We don't look at each other, we don't smile, we don't talk. And if you look at, as you said, the main psychological needs of what human beings need, and that hasn't changed, remember, in thousands of years. The thing that evolves the latest is our mind. Even though we think that today's kids, you know, you and I, we are a different generation. We would look at 15-year-olds today and we would be like, whoa, <laughs> they're they're so much smarter than we are. They're so much mature. They're so much quicker. But let's remember that their brain is exactly the same as our brain, mm-hmm. because the brain takes hundreds and thousands of years to evolve. Mm-hmm. So that means even though they are living in an adult world, and we would say 13 year olds are acting like adults, their brain is not. So that means that if you put them into a world that is supposed to be more adult, but you forget that they are just as immature as we were when we were 13 this is where you get the crash. Mm. Because they have no social interaction. Their needs of being seen are maybe at 30% of what you and I had when we grew up. And this is the recipe for an entire generation that is going to be emotionally damaged Mm. because they have not been met at the needs of what they needed. And that can potentially explain... Why we also see that a lot of uh, young people are, are struggling with their mental health. So, I think one of the things is restoring the community, because I think one of the most beautiful things of a church community or a community in the mosque is you have intergenerational communication and interactions. Mm-hmm. You have young people teaching grandfathers and grandmothers new words. Mm-hmm. So we are helping them to grow. But you also have grandmothers and grandfathers teaching younger people to relax. Yeah. You know? Challenges will come and challenges will go. Yeah. And then you have the people in the middle, which is us, who have perspective, who will say, you know, try to be a little bit less on social media. Try to be a little bit more active. And then you have the young people teaching us to be more efficient and better at using digital media. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you ruin community this very important layer of teaching each other things, both up from young to old and down from old to young, disappears. And then we will have generations who basically will not be ready to face the challenges that they're going to get. And I think, sadly, they're going to get bigger challenges than we've ever seen because social media digital media is a massive social experiment that we don't know the consequences of yet. So uh, I I completely agree with you that uh, this is the conversation we need to have. And and I don't have the full answer. I just know that we need to start creating communities and lifting the power of community. And I definitely know that uh, Scandinavia, Europe and the so-called West need to learn from the communities uh, in the African context. And we really need to learn to see each other with more empathy, as you said, because luckily the world is becoming international. So in Oslo, we have people from all over the world. We have a lot of Nigerians living in Oslo. And that is very beautiful, because then I think we can can also learn uh, from each other.
0: Yes, let's look at it from the evolutionary psychology aspect, right? There was this loneliness expats that I listened to on Rogan's podcast, like I think two years ago or so. He said the reason why when people are lonely, they feel depressed, they start having suicide ideation or they panic or the rest of it is from an evolutionary point of view, when you were alone, evolutionarily in the early stage, it meant you were going to die. Because if you were away from your pack you were exposed to the wild animals, you were exposed to starvation, you were exposed to all sorts of things. So loneliness is um, the reason why we feel loneliness and we feel it as a form of like a negative emotion is because we needed to stay alive. Because if you were okay by just being alone, that means you were going to die. But if you felt the need to reconnect with your pack, And you were feeling lonely and it was a negative energy. It made you, it forced you to go look for your pack, your community in order to stay alive. So it it was a simple, it is a simple mechanism for us to be, to just be alive or to exist is the fact that we cannot afford to be alone. And it made so much sense because looking at it from that evolutionary point and the effects that it has on us today, we might not just like you say, we may not get eaten by the wild animals or starve as it be, but life would get you. The challenges of life would actually get you. And it's still the same thing, right? That that we are experiencing today. So more of, like you said, I also don't have the answer to these things, but I think we are, you stumble on your way upwards, right? We are actually creating or giving an opportunity for the solutions to these things to come to life. Because, um the more we keep having open conversations like this talking about the this things is it gives an opportunity for people to listen and have those type of conversations in their own personal lives and look at their lives and say oh okay how can i actually improve because um here yeah, i'm listening, i'm hearing the dangers of this trend that is going on and if i can make that adjustment in my own personal life maybe it to have a ripple effect on my family my friends and the, the snowball effects can begin to take place. So um, there's, there's this particular question I wanted to ask you that I found really, really fascinating. We talked about people having a difficult time having conversations with each other, right? On the, Like understanding that we are all going through something. How does the human aspect, right, find these individuals that come... On your platform to actually share these deep meaningful stories
1: like now we are so big so people reach out to even want to share their stories but of course we do all the interviews physically so we have to be in the country or they have to be where we are to do the interview so so we try to do interview tours uh, traveling around and we partner up with local organizations or we go to social media and ask people but of course one of the most important elements is we only interview people that have you know, had some form of healthy reflection, that have gotten to a space where they can look at their own journey and feel that they have gotten to a point where things are easier and better. So that's a very important element that we only interview people who have gotten to that space.
0: Why is that particularly important? Of course,
1: it's important because all the interviews in the Human Aspect Library is supposed to provide part three as well. The lessons, the reflections. Mm-hmm. And if you share your story when you're in the middle of it, you're still lacking perspective. Yeah. You're not able to answer question three because you don't know the answer yet. And mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that. We all have challenges and we all stand in them, you know. When you finished one, there's a new one that's gonna come mm-hmm. so but the challenge that you share in the human aspect, which is the big you know we ask you what is your biggest challenge that you faced in life, then you need to be in a space where you can look back at it so that you provide into the library some form of reflectional insight that uh, others can can find to to utilize and also, as you said, I think it's very beautiful to look back into where we are in humanity right now and and say that we can do something it's it's not completely hopeless but Mm -hmm. let's have and start those conversations around the dinner table where we talk about more meaningful things and where we don't have an objective of the conversation because too many conversations today is about me wanting to convince you about something or me wanting to need you or me trying to tell you something Mm -hmm. Instead of the more natural conversations where we could just have a question or something that happened at work or school, and I could just ask you, what do you think about that? What is your take on it? You know, the typical grandmother-grandfather conversations, you know, the people who have, uh, you know, they have normally more time (laughs) than we do in our modern world. And also daring to ask questions like, what is the negative impact of social media in my life? And what is the positive impact of social media in my life? And then you can ask your, your other generations, like your parents, and you can say, how does social media impact you? How are you using it? And suddenly we'll be able to build pieces in our understanding and our empathy, as you said. And eventually we will get to the deeper topics. So, you know, for example, I, one of the most meaningful questions I've asked Is to dare to ask your parents, what was the biggest challenge you faced when you were 20? Because as you said, we don't really know our parents because even like my mom is young. So even though my mom got me as young, when I was 15, you know, when I started reflecting about things, my mom was still 35. So I never knew my mom in her 20s as an adult. So daring to ask your parents or your grandparents questions, it will help them provide you understanding that they're an individual, as you said about your mother. So it was very interesting. I started asking questions to my parents and to my grandparents like, how was it when you married that young? you know i asked my stepdad how was it to meet my mom when when I'm, she had a child and you know how was it to be a stepfather to the, to this crazy young little uh, active kid you know and suddenly you they dare to share with you their vulnerabilities and and empathy is created in the space of vulnerabilities even though they're talking about 20 30 years ago you will still get a wider perspective of who who they are, and I remember I lost my grandfather, and he was a very respectful man, but he was a typical man's man as well, and in the kind of the gathering after his funeral, there was a lot of people there that was his business partners and friends and people that I'd never met, you know, because I didn't know them. And suddenly we got the conversation going where they started talking about stories about my grandfather. And it just blew my mind because the way they spoke about my grandfather is a way that I've never seen him because I was never his friend. I was his grandchild. Yeah. So obviously he reacted and behaved differently with me. So I just remember it was so beautiful to see other sides of him. But that's where I learned I really wish I had asked him those questions myself. Yeah, before he passed on. So that just reminded me of, of the importance of daring to get to know each other in the same way I do in the human aspect interviews, you know, I sit for two hours and talk to people and ask them about their life the same way you do with me now. Yeah. And I learned a little bit about your life. Those conversations are the meaningful ones.
0: Yeah. You know, you know why I really asked why it was important for people to have, you know, overcome the struggles, right? Before they come to share that story. Is you know, I said something earlier on as people propagating their coping mechanism as a proper solution to everybody else's problem on social media and the dangers of that. Let's let's take, for example. There's this trend in my country, right, Nigeria, of people saying they don't believe in love. Like they would never fall in love, like, or all men cheat. Like, no matter what you do for a man, he would still cheat on you and the rest of it. And most of the time, that mentality comes from somebody who maybe just got their heart broken in a relationship. And immediately they pick up the phone. And they make a video and they're crying. They're so emotional, right? And they're talking about, oh, I should have never given my heart to this man on all of this or to this woman. And as human beings, right? We are drawn to our emotions. It's just like when you're walking past the streets and you hear a child crying, you would stop and want to know what's going on. It's the same thing. When you see somebody emotionally expressing themselves and you're scrolling on the internet, you stop, you're drawn to it. You want to know what's going on. And if that person... Just recently came out of a relationship 24 hours ago or less than, and the person is has not fully processed or had time to reflect on how they got to that particular point or went through that process of grieving that relationship and understanding maybe the role they may have, they might have played or may not have played or the lessons they've learned from that situation. They are, when they are immediately expressing themselves, it makes people. In it, it, people in their own relationship, now they start being scared. Like, is this, is this my fate? Is this what's going to happen to me? Right. So in they go back into their personal lives, they start withdrawing. Right. They are not giving it their all anymore because they feel that is their, their fate at the end of the day. Or a man cheats on his wife and she's just all over the internet saying, you should never, young women, I'm I'm telling you this today, don't ever trust a man because this is what men do. I gave my all to this man and everything. I understand, but we should also recognize as a society that those people are not in the best position to give advice at that particular point in their lives. And we should recognize that these people need help, right? They need help at this particular time. They need to heal. So, i see these as a problem i see these as people borrowing perspective that are not originally theirs and use and applying it to their lives and the dangers that that might that might be causing there's this thing also like um in our social media spaces like it's your family that will bring you down like don't ever help your family there's this trend about it that always that always goes on and people yeah yeah, or friends or things like that. Then people in their, they, they are in their, their personal lives and they are finding it difficult to lend a helping hand to their siblings to offer help and the rest of it because they feel like, Oh, if you do all of this, you would still. I don't, my whole thing is as much as we recognize cyber bullying, recognize all the negative impact of social media, we should also recognize that people are out in social media knowingly or unknowingly propagating their own coping mechanism as a proper solution to everybody else's problem. And we should recognize the danger because this, you know, an idea is something that is very, very difficult to eradicate from the human mind. Once the mind catches hold of an idea, right, it is almost impossible to eradicate it from the human mind. So we should recognize that sometimes we are taking in some of these things that we don't consider harmless but they are staying in our subconscious and they are projecting themselves in our personal lives and in our relationships. So it is very, very important to listen to advice, but from people who have moved past that phase, who have overcome it and have a clear perspective and have real life lessons to actually give to us from whatever it is they've experienced. That's why I find the human aspects library very, very fascinating because like you said, there's what the problem is how you dealt with it and what you learned from it which i think it's very 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 important um aspect of what you're doing
1: i agree with it as well and, and of course as i have myself been in in victim mentality or in in a mindset where i was down or traumatized or where i was hurting Where I was pushing to simple coping strategies, as you said, and one of the most modern popular ones, as you also pointed a little bit towards in Scandinavia, is, you know, clean up your friends. And the challenge of that, Mm -hmm. of course, is if we all do that with the people that are struggling in our lives, then who is going to support them? Who is going to Mm -hmm. support you when you are in, uh, in down? You know, if you go through something tough for six months, will all your friends abandon you? You know, so Mm -hmm. it's it's very dangerous to to run around thinking about that. So we are supposed to support people that are going through tough times. And supporting someone with suicidal depression or supporting someone that have gone through quite something traumatic is not gonna take two weeks. You know, you can't support your Mm. friend for two weeks. You can support your friend for if they're going through eating disorder or something complex, it can take years. But just you never giving up on them. Is also what people in those interviews tell me was the most important thing for them. That one friend that never gave up. Mm -hmm. That one friend that kept calling. That one friend that kept knocking at your door, even though you said, no, don't come here. You kept knocking on the door and said, hey, I'm here. Do you want me to help do laundry in your apartment? Let's watch a football game. And they force their way through a little bit that annoying friend that you don't want to come when you want to be alone in your problem. So I completely agree. And and that's the thing that our previous generation were so good at, you know, the typical mother or, you know, father figure or grandmother that no matter if you say don't come into my room, they still did it because they knew that you needed it. So I think it's. Very important to recognize that fact. And again, have conversations about it, as you said, open conversations. What does that mean? Bad energy? What does it mean to be a bad friend? Uh, how many mm-hmm. times can a friend hurt you for it to not be healthy? And how many times can a family member be pro, you know, pushing negative energy towards you before you need to keep boundaries and, and what is just normal? And I think the last thing I kind of want to say to try to round off as well, because we could talk about this for days, is a lot of people in today's modern society, misunderstand emotions as something negative. Emotions is the most powerful system in our mind, we have our instincts, as we know, as you said, the instincts was there first, that's the oldest part of our brain, the second oldest part of our brain is our emotions. And then we have the logic, you know, in the, which is the latest development. But normally, the logic is kind of making trouble more than it's helping at the moment. Because emotions is information. As you said, the emotion loneliness is just giving you information that something is wrong in your social support system. Something has happened in your life. or you have done something or the, your support system has done something that makes your needs not being met if you're feeling depressed and down and low on energy it's information that you need to do changes the same if you're feeling fear and anxious it's information that something in your life is is wrong either you need to change your support you need to change your job you need to you know so all these emotions even anger anger is an incredibly powerful information if you are frustrated or angry something is wrong in your life but again all at the same time as i'm saying that this is information it also is supposed to be there we're not supposed to create a life where negative emotions doesn't exist we're supposed to have them there if you're grieving that's healthy if you are depressed sometimes it's healthy if you're anxious it's healthy So finding a balance of understanding that you should listen to your emotions and try to take it as information to make changes in your life. You should also accept them as a beautiful part of life because the biggest lesson about mental health that I've learned is also that when you try to suppress negative emotions, the positive emotions disappear because our mind is not designed to only feel the good emotions, you know, it's designed either you feel or you don't. So if you suppress properly, like many men do, you also become melancholic in the middle, in the sense that you just become numb. So you don't really get excited or happy, and you don't really get sad. But I would rather be a human being that can get angry sometimes, frustrated sometimes, very happy sometimes, and depressed um, sometimes. So I think that's kind of the beauty of of life. So emotions are information. They're natural. And they're a system that is part of being human that actually makes it kind of fun being human at the same time. That's where love comes from, as you said as well. So the reason why many women and men are so upset and go on social media and like rant out and say, you know, I will never talk to a man again is also because of The love that was there that you enjoyed so much that you now have lost. And this person hurt you. That doesn't mean that everyone else is going to hurt you. Because again, as you said, if we take away trust, empathy cannot rebuild and heal the wound. So I think that goes just as much for friendship, family, as it does for partners uh, in life. So I think, again, the beauty of the human aspect... Is that life is supposed to teach us something yeah you can go through any challenge in in the in world where humans are incredibly powerful in in dealing with challenges but we do such uh, so much better if we utilize community and the people around us and if we talk about it openly that's when actually challenges in life becomes our growth And we can actually become a a really cool grandmother or grandfather, you know, in the end of the day, because we've been through so many challenges (laughs) and we're reflected around them. So I guess that's the goal in life is to become a really cool grandmother or grandfather.
0: Amen to that. Um, So as we wrap up, I just got some quick rapid questions I want to ask. Um, First things first is um, individuals who may be listening, right? And who feel a sense of this helplessness that there's a lot going on, but what can they do? What would be your advice that you would give to individuals who want to get involved in mental health advocacy, both on a personal and organizational level? The
1: first thing is, of course, you can go into the human aspect. You can search for the challenges that you go. You can search for loneliness, depression. And if you choose depression, you will also see the mini documentary. It's just, um, I think it's just nine minutes long, the one about depression. And the one about loneliness is 13 minutes long. I challenge you to just watch that. Watch the whole documentary and see what happens after that, what it makes to your mind. But also if you feel really hopeless, as I said, the first thing you probably can do on one side is to try to open up to one person you trust. It's not going to change by tomorrow, this situation, because normally it takes some time for it to change, but it's going to positively impact it. And there's another small thing that is important to remember even if you have suicidal depression, the most challenging of all within mental health, you're still allowed to have a great time. You're still allowed to feel joy because the beauty of the human mind is also, as you can see in children. I've seen a lot of children in war and I've seen a lot of children in extreme poverty where in an adult mind, there shouldn't be any reason why this child should be happy and laugh, because there's nothing around them that give them any reason to laugh, if you look at it from an adult's eyes. But the beauty of children, which is the, you know, the purity of the human mind, is that if you take a football, even if it's made out of cloth and, you know, the wrapper tape, uh, and you throw it to them, they will completely forget that they are in the middle of this uh, shithole, you know, sorry, my language. And then they will smile and they will laugh. And then when they're done, they will be a little bit depressed and sad again. And you can do exactly the same if you feel hopeless. Try to do one activity that you enjoy where you for at least a short time period can forget that you're so in trouble. If it's financial trouble or relationship trouble or because we need a break We need a break from hopelessness. If you sit in hopelessness too long and alone and isolated, it will kill you. If you dare to get a break and open up to people, you can actually get uh, out of it. And if you want to get involved in advocacy, I think one of the best things you can do is you can search up local organizations around you. You can engage yourself in the church community, in the mosque community. Because I'm also a little bit concerned about the trend that everyone that has overcome a challenge and, and everyone that is still in a challenge want to become a mental health advocate. We don't need that everyone in the world who is facing something difficult, as you said, is become a social media expert on it or a coach or a, a, you know, a speaker. We need that people who feel that they want to get involved do so. In their local community and then the very few of us who overcome it fully with perspective or that has a talent to talk in a podcast or has a talent to become an influencer or that is already a celebrity so you have a platform i think the people in those spaces should try to focus on this because as you said uh, you need some emotional space between yourself and your challenge before you can actually be useful in that. But you can always be useful if you support people in the community. That you don't need to overcome your challenge to be uh, useful. And that's also something I've learned from the interviews that a lot of people have said has been life-saving for them, is to feel useful. They were a volunteer at the church or they helped out uh, cooking or they supported their sister who with moving or So I think um, that is probably the most important element Um, and join and start and be part of conversations. If you're going through something tough, dare to talk about it in not just a personal level, dare also to talk about it in the way Tony and I did now of saying, I'm feeling hopeless and depressed or I'm feeling traumatized. What in society? is part of my feeling. Because normally the way we feel is not just to blame on our own life and the people around us. And we don't want always to talk about me. I also want us to talk about why is society making us depressed? Why is society making us lonely? Because having those conversations when you're in the middle of a challenge, you can actually feel that you have something to contribute with. And suddenly you feel extra smart. and That is also, um, I think, healthy. you i think i I would uh, wrap it up in in that
0: yeah so um finally um, i think the last question would be um how can individuals and organizations collaborate or support the human aspects foundation
1: organizations um reach out if you think the human aspects library could be useful in your work for example as i said if you're a community health worker We have user guides and support resources that we could provide you with that would make it easier for you to use the library resources in your work. So just reach out and we can support you by sending those. And of course, the best way to utilize the library, because it's free, it's available to anyone, is for you to use it to support your friend, share it with your sister, share it with your boss if you think it's useful. If you're a teacher, use it in class. Use it to create a discussion in school with your students. There's so many ways of using it. Just share in your Instagram story a video from our platform. Because talking about it doesn't need to be you talking about it. You can share the video of of my story, for example. And you can say, this is exactly how I'm feeling right now. I want to bring out Jimmy, someone who has overcome it because I want us to talk more about depression instead of you making a video, as you said, crying about depression, which is you know, not the right place to to express it is um, maybe you can do that with a friend or someone who can actually be there for you instead of seeking the attention of of the social media. So I think that could be um, A beautiful way of doing it and we have so many things you can share with friends or on your platform that is uh, you know therapeutic uh, for the world and for people who feel like um, the way you feel
0: okay so how can people find the human aspect library what are the websites the social media handles and the rest of it
1: it's the human aspect everywhere so it's easy humanaspect.com human aspect on instagram human aspect on tiktok human aspect on facebook so it's it's the same handle everywhere. And we also have a podcast that is called Aspects. So if you go to Spotify or, you know, Apple Podcast or Google Podcast and you search for Aspects, you will also find the, the podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you very much, Jimmy. I'm so really grateful for giving me this opportunity to have this conversation with you. And I'm looking forward to future collaborations and like i said please if there's any way or anything i can do to help um, just always reach out to me i'm always open and available and yeah looking forward to us maybe doing this sometime in the future and do take care of yourself and enjoy the rest of your day
1: thank you so much and i'm really looking forward to coming to nigeria as i said we are coming to nigeria at one point as well for an interview tour very excited about that we don't know when yet
0: i'll be looking forward to that also Thank you very much for listening to this conversation. To support this podcast, please like, share, leave a comment or review and follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Pierce underscore Arena. Thank you once more.